0: History. Hello and welcome back to the history of the Rhode Island Air National Guard. Today we have the pleasure of sitting down with retired Colonel Susan Augustus and retired Lieutenant Colonel Peter Augustus, who met and were married while they were both serving with us. Peter was a Mustang officer who started as an enlisted maintainer and finished as the wing photo officer, which is what they used to call the officer in charge of public affairs. Susan was a medical officer and the first female officer in the history of the Rhode Island Guard, both Air and Army. She was the first female officer to achieve every rank between First Lieutenant and Full Bird Colonel. We have a packed house today. I'm also joined by Lieutenant Colonel Darren Sorensen, who you'll remember as one of our unofficial unit historians, Master Sergeant Kelly Case from Medical, Master Sergeant Susie Reyes, who runs the best recruiting team in the DoD, and Staff Sergeant Christy McDonald, also from Public Affairs, is listening and writing me notes when I forget questions. So let's get started. Colonel Susan Augustus and Lieutenant Colonel Peter Augustus welcome, sir and ma'am, and why don't we start by having each of you walk us through your careers and milestones with the Rhode Island Air National Guard.
1: My name is Lieutenant Colonel Peter Augustus, United States Air Force, retired, the third. Anyway, I started. Enlisted in 1960, and I was assigned to the, uh, the dock crew, which is, we maintain the aircraft, the, the HU-16s. And I volunteered to be a, uh, at the time, a flight mechanic, which they gave us a nice title of flight engineer later on. And uh, I flew many missions around the state and cross country. And one day I raised my hand when they were looking for Officers. And lo and behold, I was uh, commissioned uh, a, first, a second lieutenant with uh, three years credit to the first. And my old supervisor in maintenance said, You know, we, you're an officer because you are a lousy mechanic. <laughs> I said, Thanks a lot, boss. <laughs> so they kicked me upstairs, and uh, now I had uh, turnaround. Turn I would send my photographer down to take the picture of them trying to work. I said, <laughs> I'll hold it, got that. <laughs> <laughs> and we had, it was a nice relationship being a, a Mustang. In fact, on a cross country trip to Germany, I uh, was volunteered to be a bus driver because I was the only one in a group that had a, a license to drive a bus when I was enlisted, which carried over to my commission status. And for a day or two, uh, I drove a bus. I would pick up the maintenance people, and they'd look at me, they didn't know what to salute. I think, you know, i bored. <laughs> and and uh, those were funny days. And from then, I just progressed up the ladder uh, in public affairs and grew along with the unit, both in named designation and aircraft uh, assignments. On one of the trips, that I followed the uh, hospital unit over to the Azores, I ran into Susan, which I've been not studying her, but she was first everything. First, uh, first captain, female captain, first nurse in the outfit, first lieutenant colonel, first full colonel, nice press. Anyway, I decided to go with the uh, hospital unit to the Azores, mainly uh, not because of Susan, my, my father was born on Te in the Azores, and my mother was born in St. Michael's in the Azores. So I had this opportunity to get on board and, and do my thing. And the funny aside was, I was assigned a staff car, but there was none available, so they gave me a station wagon. So I said, fine, I'm not proud. So I drove around the island in my station wagon, and I received a call one day that get down to the motor pool, I said, oh, I have to turn this thing, I guess. So I get down to the motor pool and I run into a Sergeant Green, who I met at the Air Force Academy when I was a liaison officer. He was working at the Air Force Academy and I was there visiting. And he he said, uh, we have got you a sedan. Oh, fine. So I get into my sedan. Thank you very much. Drive up to the hospital and the first sergeant comes out and I said, what are you doing with that car? I, said, I just was assigned. He said, they took it away from the commander. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, Dr. McKee. Dr. McKee, nice, nice man. He said, you know, I really didn't want the car in the first place. Would you mind taking me to the golf course? Sure. Yes, <laughs> were you able to see your family when you were in the Azores? No, I... The family had, they all passed away. And uh, I, what I did uh, do, my next door neighbor had an aunt, Aunt to Sarah, that was caught up in an earthquake and she was in a refugee camp. She and I, Susan and I went to the ref, refugee camp and looked up, looked up the aunt. And lo and behold, we found her. I speak Portuguese a little bit And between her little English and my little Portuguese, we had a nice conversation. When I got back home, my next-door neighbor was ecstatic. She was uh, a Portuguese professor at UMass Dartmouth. Wonderful woman, anyway. We had taken some pictures for her. Yeah, we took some photos of the aunt and the camp and the, the people that she was
2: with. It was quite nice. Was that the reason you went to the Azores was the refugee camp two reasons one i i want I wanted to
1: get to the Azores to see my my uh, where my people were born and secondly it was good press I mean the hospital unit always good for uh, photographs locally nationwide you name it
3: well that year we had um, they were doing a drill on uh, an exercise and the whole point was to show how the National Guard could integrate with the active duty and just work seamlessly. So we had, uh, actually, I was the patient, that we hadn't got me OR, everybody got into their gowns and sterile stuff. And I was the patient, and then it showed um, one of our people as a, an OR tech, and it was a great story for him.
1: A side to the story was, I'm squeamish about operating rooms, and I wouldn't go in. So I mm-hmm. sent my photographer, and I said, "Ruthie, take the
0: picture, please. I can't go mm-hmm. in." <laughs> so, ma'am, how about yourself? And I know you had an incredibly historic career, so much so that you were a great scoop for your husband several times. <laughs> a story. Um, yeah, can you, can you can you walk me walk me through uh, your career a little bit? Okay, um,
3: when I was working in the recovery room at Rhode Island Hospital. One of the nurse anesthetists was a nurse in this unit. And he was, uh, was trying to encourage me to get into the guard. And I was, I was seriously thinking about it um, because I was about to go to anesthesia school, and that would be a big cut in my income, and I needed a little, little something extra. And at the same time, the neighbor of my parents was a loadmaster in the unit. And he was always telling stories and encouraging me to go in. So I said, well, I've always wanted to do something with service, but I don't want to do active duty. I don't want to be away from home. So this would be perfect. So everything just kind of came together. So at the time we would just attack clinic with uh, probably only about 35 uh, members. So there was this nurse anesthetist that I uh, worked with and myself were the only two nurses time. So I, I became the chief nurse of two. Which is kind of silly, but as the unit expanded we, we got more people. So I came in as a first lieutenant. Uh, a year later I was promoted to captain and uh, he was there to capture every first. <laughs> and it was uh, it just progressed naturally. You know, everybody thinks it was it was extraordinary, but to me it was just I was just doing my thing.
0: And what we're all the first, ma'am, and it's not—it's not bragging if I ask the question.
3: Oh, <laughs> uh, first female officer, first female, everything, first lieutenant, captain, major, LC,
0: colonel. And this is in the entire Ro- uh, yes. Rhode Island Guard, not not just the Air Guard. Right. That's incredible, ma'am. The 143rd started out at TF Green. Can you describe the facilities at TF Green? Describe sort of what it was like back in the in the TF Green days.
1: In in the early '60s. Uh, my
0: office was in
1: the main hangar building. The hangar building was uh, home to civilian airline, also, so we shared some space. Not every airline could could come up to our operations, but it was shared with with the passengers coming in and whatnot. Um, ironically, the main TF Green uh, TF Green Airport was on the same street as our hangar building. It was the uh, air operations and the control tower. And 20 years later, I ended up back at the control tower as the as the, uh, advisor to the Civil Air Patrol. So I, I maintained that position for over 10 years working with uh, young men and women. And uh, in the meantime, we had moved to Kwanzaa. Our new facilities here here. Uh, I shared an office upstairs across from the commander, and it was it was quite pleasant. It was a quite an experience.
0: Was was proximity to the commander a good thing or a bad thing? As I
1: stated before to you, John, it's either yes or no when you work for the boss. Uh, I'd like to go on a trip to Davis Martha. No. Okay. <laughs> so I learned. Uh, sort of sidetrack. I'd go to my friend in. CBPO and I said, I'd like to go to Davis Martha, at card uh, authorized. <laughs> Next thing you know, I'm, I'm a plane to Davis Martha. So anyway, this all caught up to me on a trip to the Azores when the commander approached me on the line, the flight line. And he said, I don't think I should send you there. Why? He said, you never come to me first. I said, but Joe, you signed my order, so you know where I'm going. He said, I'll take it on board. So <laughs> <laughs> I knew he didn't make it.
0: Man, What, what about your experience at, um, at TF Green? How was how it different there as far as facilities and and, and mission?
3: Bare bones, old equipment. Of course, back in the late 70s, it was probably as good as it would would get. But was it, it wasn't... Um, Anything like it is now, and we didn't even have regulations on paper. We didn't have additional duties on paper. We didn't have anything on paper. And uh, as the years went on and the regulations changed, and they started cracking down more, we had to we had to do all do all this from from scratch. And when we became a hospital, that expanded our uh, manning document. Uh, my position became major. And we, we got more med techs med, and uh, better equipment. At just about every, every section expanded a little bit. And and eventually we became a medical group. It's been interesting to watch because most of, the, most of the people in the unit didn't do the same job in the civilian world. And to see them on annual training fit right in and do their military job. Like it was, it was something they always did. It was, it was very satisfying. So, you know, the training is is effective. It was, it was good to, <laughs> we, were in, we were in a building across the street. I think is the army Guard still there. Um, airport, army, yes,
4: ma'am.
3: yeah. It was good to get out of there. Cause it was all like fifties tile. And it was really kind of depressing. So it was good to get here and uh,
1: start all over again. Incidentally, the hospital unit or clinic unit failed an inspection, and Sue was tasked to restart the hospital unit. For a year, Sue kicked butt and result, an outstanding award on the inspection of the hospital unit. And in that year, she was on a fast track or one star. The star was authorized for that position. Um, it was a tough year, marriage-wise. We were married at the time. And uh, Sue would spend two, three days down here after work and on Saturdays and Sundays to kick butt.
3: As well as my four-day-a-week job
1: mm-hmm. at home. I mean, it was so bad. Some of the hospital records, we're up, up under a ceiling tile. We're hidden up there for some reason.
0: <laughs> so you said it was a tough time, and we talk. You know, now we talk a lot about resilience and um, what allowed your, your your marriage to be strong and survive during those times. Oof. Willpower.
3: Uh, well, we we talked about it and basically listed the good things and the bad things about um, you know why we were having trouble. And I said, well, the marriage means more to me than anything. So that's when I decided. I had my 20 years in. And I said, it would be nice, but let somebody else be the first female general. And uh, so I decided to take my retirement.
0: So you gave up being a general for for uh, for love. For love. That is the that is the most <laughs> wow. This is, this exceeds all our expectations for this podcast. We did not think we were going to get well, anything that, so wonderful.
3: Disappointed so me you. was that the first female general wasn't a Rhode Island Air Guard.
0: That's right. We've okay. got General Bauman now. So, yeah. Yeah. What about the mission of the Air Guard while, while you were in? How did how did the mission of of the Air Guard or the mission of medical or the mission uh, the PA mission evolve over the, the time that you were in?
3: The medical mission is basically about the same. It was to, to train and
0: prepare to fill in for,
3: for active duty. It expanded over the years, but it, it basically stayed the same.
1: Our aircraft and, and title changed three or four times while I was in. I went from a, um, a troop carrier to a special ops, air commando, TAC, and now uh, airlift wing. Physically, we wore many hats. I had the black hat, I had the jungle cap with my cap through the in front. In fact, there's a photo, if you go to my Facebook page, there's a photo of me getting off one of the aircraft, a U-6 Beaver, in my, my PA photographer role with my cameras strapped to me and I'm running off the aircraft. So it was quite a change and good press. Boy, I'll tell you, we at one point at a special ops, we uh, supported uh, the—I call them sneaky peats, the army, army um, special uh, forces people with their black faces and you know, make paint and whatnot—coming out to an Hu sixteen on a rubber raft in, at night, and uh, they get, get up to the raft and we take them off, we put them on board and then take off and drop them down in Charleston somewhere. And then I'd have to get out of the aircraft. I was the first aircraft in. This was enlisted now. And I would get off the aircraft and he'd give me a fluorescent lights. I have to stand on the edge of the runway like this and the plane to come in-, in for landing and I had to be like, oh. <laughs> oh.
0: I would have taken a step back when they were asking me, you know, for <laughs> the volunteer for that one.
1: <laughs> but we, we supported the army people and uh, I had the pleasure of uh Kicking the paratroopers out the back door. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you were talking about the integration between active duty and the National Guard, and I would say after 1990, the Gulf Storm time frame, we really were integrated, and that's when the National Guard came to be pretty much peers with the active duty side. So. It's kind of interesting when you talk about regulations when you first started in 1978. A lot of times there were guard waivers for things because we were only there as a traditional, you know, on the drills. And and so did you get any push at that time in the 70s and 80s regarding elevating the role to line up with active duty? Or was it the guard was still separate at that time and had their own mission?
3: Yeah, well, we had our own mission, but it was to actually what we did in '91 um, with Desert Storm. We were supposed to go to England for annual training, but and we ended up going to Langley, and that's that's when I think we really made our name is that we, we filled in seamlessly, and uh, we've been doing it ever since.
2: That yeah, we have that's when I started as well as as the Gulf Storm era. But, uh, you know, I did see a transition as I walked in the door as, uh, you know, in my very early 20s and seeing people that were there for 20 years and a lot of more Vietnam veterans at the time. Mm -hmm. And and the guard, I just seemed to walk in at that transition point where uh, I remember going to tech school and all the active duty airmen would Roller eyes and guardsmen at the time. That was just the reputation we had. Was it was
3: like, oh, you're here for a vacation.
2: Exactly. Were there a lot of um, Vietnam veterans when you started in 78?
3: This friend, this nurse anesthetist friend that uh, got, helped get me into the Guard, he was actually, he had been in the Army, and he had actually been in Korea. And he was injured in Korea, so he wouldn't have gone
2: to
1: Vietnam. But uh,
2: And how about you? Did you encounter a lot of... Vietnam veterans in PA.
1: Uh, not really. What what I did encounter was, at first, being almost a second-class citizen uh, as far as the Air Force was concerned. And now we are here today, training the Air Force people how to fly, and and how to survive. It's it's come full circle. In the beginning, we we received hand second-hand aircraft. Just pull out of the uh, boneyard and assigned to us.
3: And yeah, the A models were Vietnam veterans. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, came
3: right. mm-hmm. okay, from Vietnam.
2: I believe I believe the A models came from New Hampshire. And New, Hampshire. From New Hampshire. New right. Hampshire, correct. And the E models were from the Pacific, so I believe that the E models had some Vietnam time. Uh, I think we got one from the Philippines and a few more from Thailand, I believe. Right. Yeah, and we had a lot of problems with those because they were in the Pacific. They struggled in the maintenance side to keep them flying. Our maintenance um, people are outstanding. I heard that from uh, back in the day that they took planes that shouldn't, that were not flyable and they and they made them up to code.
1: so. A uh, uh, funny aside, we were on a uh, C-130 coming back from a deployment and we landed at Pope and on uh, on final approach, uh, the pilot came back and he said, Pete, take a look at number two. Yeah, it's a crack. He said, Should I land? I said, Yeah, it lands. <laughs> <laughs> so we landed the uh, the cell, an exhaust port under the cell that had a crack, and we tried to locate a, 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 a nacelle on base. And, maintenance officer was unavailable. I said, oh, let's do some homework. We just went over to where the aircraft was on jack in the hangar, pulled one off, took ours, put it back in the hangar, (laughs) and we took off. It was a a midnight requisition. (laughs) So, maintenance people are outstanding.
4: I'm curious about uniforms. You talked about uh, airplane changes. Did you guys have a lot of uniform changes while you were in?
1: I had shorts,
0: knee socks. <laughs> you had shorts?
4: What? Oh had man,
0: shorts. we're all jealous. <laughs> <laughs> you you hear that big Air Force broom back? The shorts. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't last too long. So, so you long.
4: started in the greens. Is that They called them greens? And then BDUs were after that?
0: Yeah, that was fun.
2: And which was your favorite uniform? I always hear the greens were very
0: comfortable. Yes, the greens were extremely comfortable. in sort of case, do you have any um, any good medical questions? Because I could I could make up a stupid one, but whether <laughs> you know, rather um, you ask a good one. Well, it
4: sounds like right now uh, how we function, we don't treat uh, at our facility here. We're we're more of like a medical readiness. But it sounds like you were wearing scrubs and actually like doing some kind of a function that was like a hospital at uh-huh. some point. On active duty for training. Okay. We didn't
3: do any of that here, but uh, we were trained for it, and we we had uh, several techs that were trained for operating
4: room. And I believe you also had an ambulance on base here, and that was for training? Mm
3: Mm-hmm. We also did a rescue with that ambulance. It was outside the gates, but um, an experimental plane crashed, nose first um, just outside the gate and we just got in the ambulance and took
1: off. Incidentally, I happened to be in the clinic with the hospital people when the call came in and I jumped in the ambulance with her with my camera and um, she she got bounced around like a ball in, in, inside the cab. Yeah, I and, got an injury <laughs> <of> it. <laughs> and we, we, uh, we got to the crash site and uh, we were informed that there's no hope for the, the pilot, and uh, I didn't feel comfortable taking any pictures, so I, I just let it go. I just wrote the story as is.
2: And roughly what year was that? When did that happen?
3: Well, it was here, so it was after '80, Probably
0: early 80s. Susie Reyes had a couple questions. We're going to bring you in here and go ahead and let you ask a question. Uh, Susie Reyes is our, uh, our, our ace recruiter. She's running the recruiting over there. Just get in right
4: next to us. So a question for both of you, what made you want to join, particularly you, ma'am, the Air National Guard at the time when you joined?
3: I had, I had always wanted to do some kind of service. My dad had been in the, at the time it was the Army Corps. He was a flight mechanic in, based in, uh, at McCarran Field in Las Vegas. And he always had some good stories to tell, too. He was one influence. And then someone that I worked with also wanted me to come into the unit. My parents' neighbor was a loadmaster in the unit, and he kept trying to recruit me. And at the time, I was going to be going into anesthesia school, which meant a big drop in my income. So I decided that would be a good supplement. So when everything all just came together, and I
4: signed up. I can imagine at the time when you did, there were not a lot of females no. in the service. No.
3: Um, I didn't even think about that. You know, it just it never really occurred to me that it was an issue that's until the <laughs> public affairs
4: officer made a big deal out of it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where you come in. What made you want to join, sir?
1: Early on at Boston University, my roommate was in the guard. And, uh, He constantly talked about the God, the God, the God. And on drill weekends, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I'd have to wake him up, get him dressed, in his car, and get him down here. And this went on for four years. Long story short, he became a pilot and a full colonel. Part of our passenger crew became a pilot and a full colonel here. That's how I got involved with with the unit, uh, I decided to come down here, take a look. And I raised my hand and they sent me to boot camp. And I had my little stripe. Right? <laughs> and I, after three years, I had th- three, but only tacked on because I was going up before the general for my commission. He said, do you have any regrets?" I said, yeah, I'd, I'd like to spend a little bit more time with my stripes. He says, you can, you know? We can, I said, okay, no, it's so great.
0: And uh, I took the bar, I took the stripes, the <laughs> <laughs> Never looked back. Never looked
4: back. When you guys talk about your experiences in the Guard, it sounds like, like, not only is it, like, it's a cool decision you make, but it's also like part of your family. Every story is leading into growth and development of the people around you, civilian side and military. There wasn't a question there. It's just
1: <laughs> well, all my life I was infatuated with the Air Force. In high school and junior high, I was constantly drawing pictures of aircraft. My side of the family is kind of artistic. And um, when I came down here, I applied to, for pilot training and my eyesight, I just couldn't make it
0: which turned out to be a good thing, because you ended up having the additional duty as the permanent beer and wine chairman. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I was a former wholesale distributor of beer, wine, and liquor for Southeastern Massachusetts, Cape Cod, and the islands. And I was a perfect fit to be uh, the bar and mess chairman for the Oak Club. And I arranged the, uh, the bar and the specialty parties that we had, or dinners, I should say, we. Uh, my goal was to increase the morale of the, the officer corps. We had a hundred officers down here at the time, and each officer was had to pay their dues to the old part. It was mandatory. So consequently, at any any dinner, half would show. So I used their half of money to. Expand the dinners, and I, we had themed dinners, and Chief Warren Officer, head of the uh, mess hall, Shagman, Jimmy Shagman's father, very cooperative. We had Portuguese night, Greek night, Italian night. We also had, uh, we had cheese parties, and I learned early on not to serve cube cheese anymore. After a few drinks, the uh, party sort of got out of hand, and the cubes start flying over. <laughs>
3: My very first
1: Officers Club meeting
3: as a new First Lieutenant. I'm in my spiffy new uniform, and I'm just so proud of myself. We get into the Officers Club, and like he said, uh, we get a few drinks, and all of a sudden, the cubes start flying. <laughs> so, my Archie Barbarian, he was a big boy, so I, he, he said, get behind me, get behind me. So. Flying and he was, he was taking all
1: the hits, so my uniform remained pristine. <laughs> <with this team. laughs> but that was my welcome into the O Club. I, I was feeling no pain at the time. and <laughs> I got behind the commander and I had a bullseye and I rose.
0: <laughs> and he looked at
1: me and he says, Augustus, I'm going to get you for this. <laughs> so consequently,
2: no more cheese. <laughs> Sliced cheese. That was it. <laughs> and to this day, we have no cube cheese. <laughs> now we know how it started.
0: But the Air Force wasn't all shorts and cube cheese back then. You guys did support some very serious missions. Can you can you talk about some of the times you really had to step up and answer the call?
3: Well, for us, it was that desert storm. That was the first really serious. We The medical unit was also activated twice at the Institute of Mental Health. When they went on strike, we had to go in. Act as nurses, nurses aides, whatever. I was <laughs> I was in charge at night. And somehow or other, I pulled the night shift um, on a uh, cancer unit. So there were a lot of special treatments and special medications, and it was it was tough, but we did it. When we got through
1: at one point we did we supported the uh mission panama, HU-16s and flight crew would uh run the uh, central south american route we, we resupply the embassies with personnel refrigerators anything that they required and uh it, it was it was a good chance to see central america mm. between nicaragua south el Salvador panama i got to uh fly on missions, and
0: good press. And, and tell me a little about, you said you did a little bit of reconnaissance photography too.
1: Yes, uh, our aircraft at the time would fly a, a Z pattern, a zigzag pattern, to, uh, not to alert the enemy. And each, at each turn, initial point, I'd have to uh, take a photograph. We did it, I did it in a, a heliocoria and uh, I'd have my Nikon and, and we'd get over the uh, LZ or DZ and he would fly a tight circle and I'd put the camera straight down because the, the camera doesn't move, the aircraft does. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, I, I did that many occasions. Um, at one point in a heliocoria, um, we, we came out of a, a steep bank and I was as white as this shirt I said, "You okay?" I said, uh, "I think so." He says, "Grab the wheel, point towards the horizon." Okay. Hey, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> so, I became an instant pilot.
0: <laughs> My dream. You know, Susie told me I was going to get to fly the planes when I joined, but I, I, they still haven't let me. <laughs> if either of you were just giving advice to someone who is a, a young airman just entering the Air Guard, what, what advice would you give them?
1: Do it. <laughs> I would say volunteer for everything. Uh, my first instructions were, don't volunteer for anything. And that was not my, my nature. Uh, at boot camp, the, the, the instructor said, anybody know how to march? I said, I do. I happened to be in a drum and bugle corps as a civilian. Incidentally, the my trumpet player uh, instructor was in the guard also. I didn't know it at the time, but it was uh, Ennis Biswano, who was a retired colonel and living in Bristol now, I became a squad leader. So I I led my little group of 12 guys. One of the members of my unit, of my boot camp uh, flight, was from Rhode Island. There were four of us, or five of us. And he was short in stature. He's a full master sergeant down here. He's still working, I believe. And uh, he was a lousy. Marcher. He was out of step constantly. And when you do a, a, a mass formation of 144 men, everybody's doing this, he's doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, the person head of the uh, formation came running off the bandstand, grabbed him, he said, get back there. We're going to send you back for two weeks on on March. What I did for him, I made him permanent barracks chief. So he never had to watch again, <laughs> and he and I became good friends. And uh, even to this day, if I see him walking down the street, I go Peter Ray. Hey! But anyway, um, I receive an order that I was now photo officer. Okay, I'm, I'm photo officer. Next thing you know, I have three female photographers working with me, and it. it uh,
0: and you said they were the first female airmen in the unit.
1: First female airmen to come into the guard.
0: And what what year was that?
1: Uh, I would say early 70s. I 70s. And Do you remember any of their names? Uh, Ruth
0: Baxter, for one. Mm-hmm.
3: Yep, two girls. Uh...
0: Donna. Oh, Donna. Donna Rettenmeyer. Donna Rettenmeier Yeah, It'd be fun to talk to, maybe talk to one of them too. If You, you, I, you know, I, it, since I'm, you did the podcast, you guys can recommend victims to us. <laughs> and we'll go find them and, well, you know, try and get them to come in. And feed him donuts
1: <laughs> be a, a, a real good candidate she was she was one tough cookie mm-hmm. <laughs> for in uniform uh. professional, i cannot be major dear call me major call me anything else but don't call me major dear in front of the channel no. so anyway
4: <laughs> i have a question about travel you guys t- talked about some amazing places and opportunities that you had do you have any that stick out in your mind as one of those that was awesome well the azores obviously
1: (laughs) azores germany panama we didn't go across the pond
3: well actually one one trip travel actually was another another incentive because i kept hearing these stories from these two friends about every place they'd been and I said, wow, you know, get to see places. Well, that, I have been to places that I would never have gone to otherwise. Well, we went to Davis-Monthan quite often, and that was, that was always good. And they, once we got integrated the, the first time, they remembered us when we came back. And it, like he said, we weren't second-class citizens anymore. You know, we were part of the team. And that was, that was good, but the ASOS was wonderful. We went to a brunch meeting with some of the, the folks after we had retired. And they were talk, they had just had a good inspection. So they were told the unit could go anywhere they wanted for annual training. They wanted to go to Hawaii. So we, we were listening and we're saying, well, now when is this gonna be? So they told us, I said, uh, any chance we could tag along? So the chief made the arrangements and we got to go to Hawaii. So we went, um, we went, got off the plane in Honolulu, ran across the tarmac, grabbed another plane and went to Kauai. We had a, uh, condo that a friend of, of his from the army.
1: When I was enlisted, my crew chief on a 16 was Tom Shorthall. Tom Shorthall left the air guard, went over to the army side and became a helicopter pilot. Tommy Shorthall had a townhouse in Kauai. It was located in the most prestigious area of Kauai, overlooking High. Valley High. So he said, the only stipulation is, I have to pay you know, with rent. He said, uh, I'm gonna just r- rock bottom rent. Write down anything that needs repair or painting and give it, make a punch list. So that's was my, I made a punch list for Tom, and we spent two lovely leaves in this townhouse, you wouldn't believe. And uh, we got back, we took a flight back to uh, Honolulu and we were kind of late arriving and they held the aircraft for us. Well, prior to that, um, we checked into the uh, BOQ, Bachelor of Officers Quarters. Sue being an 06, we figured they'd give us a room. Fine. Said, Tisha, you're in that building. I said, okay. It was another townhouse <laughs> from no 06. And the building officer said, uh, No generals are coming on board, so I'm going to give you this. Thing. <laughs> so they gave Sue so the, uh,
2: the townhouse. Very nice. I, I should say, I know Tom Shorthall. Uh, when I was president of the National Guard Association in 2012, he was the retired Army officer rep. Many people do not know Mm -hmm. this, but he was the helicopter pilot of Governor Mm Garahee during the blizzard of 78. He would fly him all around the state. And I I don't know how many years he did that, but he was the personal pilot of of Governor Garahee at that time. And he always talked about Hawaii. He loved that uh, Mm -hmm. spot. So uh, I I knew him well. He was a great guy.
3: Another um, annual training that stands out was uh, Okinawa. That was fantastic, and we got um, opportunities to get out on historical-type tours. They would tell stories of the war and how the Japanese treated them, and that was an incredible
0: trip. Did you do the cave tour? Yes. I, I was stationed on Okinawa twice, actually, for, for a year each time. Yeah, that's a great, a great tour. There's so much history on the island.
3: Yeah. Those caves, I mean, st- stories you never hear of in the, in the history.
0: Ma'am, when you, achieved, when you achieved the rank of colonel, in staff meetings, was there any difference between you and the male officers? Did you ever feel like any difference? No. Can you talk a little bit about that?
3: No. And as I said before, I, I never really thought about it. I always felt like I was treated as an equal.
0: So if anyone had a problem, they weren't telling you. <laughs> no. <laughs> Very good. Well,
2: it's great that you were just blended into the unit, even though you were the first of, of many firsts for the females, and I know roughly right now we're about 30% female. I'm not exactly sure what it was back then. When we look at the numbers today, roughly around 30%, are are we talking less than 5% back in the 70s? Or what would you, if you had to guess?
3: And I think the majority of the females were probably in the medical Mm -hmm. unit. But I'd say maybe 10%.
4: So you guys both serve for quite a long time. What was it back then that got you to continue serving and, and staying in the Air National Guard? Is there anything specific or multiple things that you were like, it wasn't even a, a thought, you're going to continue serving as long as you can?
3: Well, when I first went in, I you know I was using it as a supplement to my income. I thought I'll do four years maybe, and then it got to be four, and I said, well, you know, I, I'm enjoying myself. I feel like I'm, I'm doing a service. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll stay a few more years. Well, then when you get to 10, it's like why throw away 10 years when in another 10, I can have a retirement. So I, I just stayed in and I enjoyed the work and uh, it was a lot of satisfaction and a job well done. The year that we got the excellent inspection was probably the, the highlight. Well.
1: At the end of my 20, I was a a, a, a lieutenant colonel and uh, the uh, commander said, Pete, you're you're coming up on on promotion. I said, well, I I think I'm going to step aside. I was in a a lieutenant colonel slot and there's no place for me to go. And he said, "Uh, well, think about it. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to step aside. He wanted to... Reassigned me to headquarters in a full colonel slot. I said, oh, I think I'll, I'll, I'll make it up. Then I made Susan. So <laughs> <laughs> well, three months later, I went back to the commander and said, I changed my mind. Said, uh, somebody's in your slot. <laughs> <laughs> that was
0: it. Easy come, easy go. All right, well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. We wish you the best.
2: Thank you so much. History.
0: Thank you for joining us on this episode of the History of the Rhode Island Air National Guard podcast.
4: Off we go into the wild blue yonder. Keep the wings level and true.
0: History.